Marcus Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality every Tuesday at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Hey everybody, Magnus here. You have to understand something. I went into this podcast with the very best intentions. I had a solid plan outlined. I made this huge list of all the different things I wanted to talk about. And it's something like 150 some odd topics. And the idea was to stick to it like super glue. Well, episodes 9 through 13 were supposed to be about things that have nothing whatsoever to do, not only with Superman, but with superheroes. But then that kind of changed at the last minute, and it became my Superman Begins miniseries. And now I'm working my way through this Everything Elseworlds miniseries, and it too has changed a lot in, in the telling. Now, some of you listening to this right now have got to be podcasters too. I'm sure of it. So, is this normal? Is it common to change up your program this much, this often? I'm dying to know. Email me. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your host, Trentus Magnus, and around here, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. Now, I wrapped up a mini-series all about Superman origin stories not very long ago and had a blast doing it, so I've started a new series called Everything Elseworlds, where I explore several different Elseworlds books. Now, Wikipedia says that Elseworlds is the publication imprint for a group of comic books produced by DC Comics that takes place outside the company's canon. 
The imprint presents narratives in which existing characters or storylines are introduced to an entirely new idea or concept and often put into alternate timelines or realities. Gotham by Gaslight, featuring Batman, is considered to be the first Elseworlds story. The Elseworlds name was copyrighted in 1989, the same year as the first Elseworlds publication, and supplanted the previous Imaginary Stories series that employed the same premise. Unlike its Marvel Comics counterpart, What If, which bases its stories on a single point of divergence from the regular continuity, most Elseworlds stories instead take place in entirely self-contained continuities, with the only connection to the canon DC continuity being the presence of familiar DC characters. That's where the Wikipedia entry ends. Basically, the definition for all you psych majors out there is that Elseworlds takes a familiar character or idea and puts it into a completely different context. It's about as simple as I can make it. Now, there have been shitloads of Elseworlds books over the years, but they've sort of petered out in the last several years. Dan DiDio says the reason for that is because the quality of the stories dropped too much. They just became too formulaic. And there may even be a germ of truth to that, too, but I think the more likely explanation is that Elseworlds probably aren't big sellers because the comic book market knows that Elseworlds books can be skipped because they have no bearing on continuity, by definition. It's the rare Elseworlds book that has ramifications on continuity, and so, on that basis, with cover prices at $3.99, it really doesn't make sense to buy anything more than is absolutely necessary. So DC has slowed down on producing them. That's what I think, and you're not going to change my mind. So, so yeah, today's Elseworlds book is Superman, War of the Worlds. From the Wikipedia page again, it says, Superman, War of the Worlds is a DC Comics Elseworlds published in 1999. The story is a rough adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds, but it's primarily based on the Superman mythology. God, I hate that word, mythology. Anyway, Wells' story is transported from the early, early 20th century Britain to 1938 Metropolis, where the Martian invasion is met with a, golden, with a Golden Age Superman who's not blessed with the full range of powers that he has in modern times. So, into the summary we go. Superman, War of the Worlds, is written by Roy Thomas, drawn by Michael Lark, lettered by Willie Schubert, Schubert, I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that. The colorist is Noel Giddings. complacency, men went to and fro about the globe. Confident 
of our empire over this world. Yet, across the gulf of space, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded our planet with envious eyes. And slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Earth is being watched by the envious eyes of Mars. On the red planet, a cold and unsympathetic civilization plans to invade our world. Far away, an even older world, Krypton, sends its last son to Earth. The baby Kal-El is found by the Kents and develops super strength, the ability to run faster than a railway engine, leap an eighth of a mile, and has near impenetrable skin. After the passing away of his elderly foster parents, Clark vows to use his powers to benefit mankind. In 1938, explosions are seen on Mars, but Earth doesn't pay much attention to them. Clark applies for a job at the Daily Planet where he meets Lois. Perry White sends Clark and Lois to report on a meteor which had crashed the previous night. They arrive just in time to see Professor Ogilvy and Dr. Luther investigating the meteor, which is in fact a giant metal cylinder. The lid and screws and the crowd around the cylinder cries in horror as they see a Martian emerge. Professor, o Professor Ogilvy waves a white flag in hopes of communicating with the Martians, but, but is incinerated by one of their weapons. The crowd starts to panic as more shots are fired. When Clark protects Lois from the rays, his civilian clothes are burned off, revealing Superman's costume underneath. The army arrives and prepares to deal with the cylinder when it opens and tripods emerge. The five tripods start firing at the army, whose weapons are useless against the metal hulls. Superman picks up a cannon and beats a tripod with it. As he finishes off the Martian inside, the four remaining tripods walk to Metropolis. Lois meets up with Lex and they retreat to Lex's laboratory. Earth's forces are being massacred until Superman joins the fight in Metropolis. Superman fights the tripods as best he can, but, is, but ends up subdued by another alien weapon, the Black Smoke. The tripods capture Lois, blast Clark with their heat ray, and imprison him. Three weeks later, Superman's held captive by the Martians, who are being helped by a now bald Luther after a heat ray burned off all his hair. All of Earth's major cities have been conquered and many humans have been reduced to slaves or cattle. Luther reveals that Earth's bacteria have been making many Martians sick and that they're studying Clark, whom he de deduces is in fact an alien like them. At Luther's request, Lois has been kept alive, mostly to keep Superman in check. Lex deduces that Clark's Kryptonian biology is canceling the, the deadly effects on Earth's bacteria, which is why the Martians around him aren't sick. The Martians now no longer need Luther to help, them, to help them study Superman, and they prepare to devour him. Lois and Luther free Clark, and he starts fighting the Martians. After leveling the ones inside the ship, and the ones tending to their human prisoners, Lois recoils from Superman, telling him that she can't bear to have an alien touch her after what the Martians have done, which raises all kinds of interesting questions about what they've done to her. Tripods arrive, and Superman takes them down as best he can. The last tripod discards its legs and begins to fly. As Superman finally takes it down, he dies from exhaustion and from the wounds he received from the heat rays. Acting on Clark's insight, Luther quickly finds a way to destroy the remaining Martians. Earth's, nation begin, Earth's nations begin their road to recovery. 
Germany, Japan, Italy, and the former Soviet Union elect semi-democratic governments while Great Britain turns to fascism and chooses Oswald Mosley as its leader. Lex Luthor and Lois Lane later marry. John Nance Garner becomes president and Lex becomes the new vice president. A statue of Clark Kent is erected in front of the new League of Nations as a testimony to his bravery. So, in the interest of full disclosure, I should probably say I know absolutely nothing about War of the Worlds, either as a book, a radio drama, a movie, or whatever else. This comic is pretty much the beginning and end of everything that I know about War of the Worlds, so maybe I'm behind the eight ball to start with. Still, I feel more than qualified to critique the thing anyway because... This is America, damn it. Now, Roy Thomas was probably the best choice to write a concept like this. It seems pretty obvious that he has a lot of affection for the Golden Age Superman. In fact, the first few pages of this book come off sort of like a modern retelling of the Golden Age Superman's origin story. It's got a pretty heavy and pretty noticeable Superman number one vibe to it at least at first, and I have to tell you, I ate that part up with a spoon. In fact, this comic kind of made me wonder just how well a Golden Age-style Superman set in the late 1930s might play today. I happen to think an ongoing series set in that type of continuity has got a shitload of potential. But anyway, I'll spare you that. My point is that Thomas knew when to lift almost word-for-word from Jerry Siegel and when to be original. Now, as I say, I have no clue how much of this comes from H.G. Wells, but I'm not letting that stop me. My point is that the writing in this comic oozes authenticity and a solid period feeling of America in the late 1930s. In fact, there's a moment on page six where Clark is just wandering through a train station, and I have to tell you, it's it's one thing to put Clark in period clothing, but someone new to put it to put in this farm kid staring at the architecture of the train station with wonder. Now, he may be from another planet, but Clark, like a lot of people back then, was impressed with what the modern world was beginning to do with architecture, technology, and other things. And America is on her way into the future, and that panel kind of suggests that Clark, Clark's is on board with that as anybody else. And this is one of those small details that nobody would have complained about if it hadn't been included. Nobody would have said a word, but including it goes that extra mile to establish exactly which period in American history that this is. I also dug Clark's first conversation with Lois. See, at first, even the reader doesn't realize he's talking to Lois as she's covering for the receptionist. And so Clark walks in and he talks to somebody who's basically connecting all of the different phone calls and everything, and we assume that she's just the operator, but we don't really think too much about it beyond that. It's only when the receptionist comes back and calls her Lois that we understand who she is. And it's just, it's just another cool moment. So... This could be Roy Thomas doing his own thing, or it could be something from War of the Worlds 
adapted the lineup with Superman lore, but either way, I just thought it was a really, just a really cool little sequence. And then, and then, there's George Taylor pairing Lois and Clark with each other to cover the story. Now, again, this just feels genuine to me. Lois is basically pissed off at Clark, walks in off the street and gets the opportunity she'd kill for and had been working for, but he gets it without breaking a sweat. It truly was a man's world back then, I guess. And in fact, I, this is actually a good moment to throw this in. If any of you have ever listened to the Superman radio show from the uh, 1940s, you could kind of read this whole story with Clark being voiced by Bud Collier and Lois being voiced by Joan Alexander. It had worked pretty well, actually. And I guess that makes Lex Luthor Orson Welles, which... As I say it, God, that works on a bunch of levels, now that I think about it. And anyway, as for Perry's voice, my default is to always, always, always hear Ed Asner's voice. So, hmm. Another le- neat little moment is on page 23, after Superman gets a shit knocked out of him by the alien heat ray. He struggles for a minute to catch his breath, and then he just talks out loud to nobody. He's just talking to himself. But most people wouldn't talk to themselves they'd just have an inner monologue and if this was a modern day comic superman would indeed have had an inner monologue but this is a tribute to the golden age and back then characters just talked out loud even when they didn't have to so again little bits of detail like that add up to a big impression and once again roy thomas proves he's the gold standard of not to be fucked with when it comes to writing this type of stuff from from about the time the aliens attacked this story, it kind of, all due respect to Roy Thomas and I guess to H.G. Wells, this actually comes off like a pretty straightforward alien invasion story that Superman has to then turn back. And that's about as good a time as any to talk about the artwork, I guess. See, I'm on the record for not being a big admirer of Joe Schuster's art. My email address for hate mail is trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Now, yes, 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 I know. Joe Schuster, Superman co-creator, all that, but whatever. I just, I feel like the other artists in his studio had a more pleasing line style. So, for me, for what I consider to be good comic book art, someone like John Sakella is more in line with what I like in my Golden Age Superman than Joe Schuster is. Now, Michael Lark knew to use a simpler, kind of more cartoony line style while keeping it vaguely within the Joe Schuster milieu. So, there's a clear influence there, but Lark keeps a good balance of, I guess, modern storytelling mixed with a sort of golden age type of style. And I, I, I gotta tell I could just stare at this stuff all day long. And I can't fault the technical aspects of his work either. Panels are laid out in a coherent way, character likenesses are distinctive, and also they're consistently applied throughout the whole story. And Lark even remembered to use a lot of period things in the story to keep this comic anchored to 1938. So these, these all look like the right vehicles, the right buildings, the right telephones, and everything else. He's also extremely economical with his art. I can't help but think 
most other artists would have turned the final panel on page 23, just for example, turned that into a full-page splash. But splashes generally weren't done back in the Golden Age, so Lark, it's not that he doesn't do splashes, he just keeps them to a minimum. I counted only three splashes in the entire 64-page book, so gotta think, how many other, how many more splashes would there have been in some other artist's hands, right? My hunch, and this is based just on impressions I have from other comics, my hunch is that a lot of other artists would have wanted a, a splash every five or six pages, but Lark resists, he resisted that temptation, and I was just really impressed by that. So, in fact, I'm impressed with this whole book. It's a fun little read. It riffs on a, a pretty familiar concept for most of us, by which I mean that even I have a basic idea of the story, even though I've never actually read it. And best of all, it's written by Roy Thomas. So exactly what part of that doesn't sound awesome to you? So anyway, time for some promos. I'll be right back. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. Okay, I'm back now and continuing my Everything Elseworlds series. Now, just a while ago I talked about an Elseworlds book that I have a lot of fondness for, but the Elseworlds book I'm about to talk about 
Well, I think I may have slightly different things to say. This is Superman Speeding Bullets, which, as Wikipedia says, is a DC Comics Elseworlds prestige format one-shot comic book published in 1993. It's based on the concept of an amalgamation of Superman and Batman, so into the summaries we go. This is Superman Speeding Bullets. Writer is J.M. DeMatteis, and penciler is Eduardo Barreto. Baby Kal-El crashes into Earth, where he's discovered by Thomas and Martha Wayne. The couple decide to adopt Kal-El and name him Bruce. One night, Thomas and Martha are gunned down by a mugger. Bruce incinerates the mugger with his heat vision and discovers his superpowers, but it's too late to save his parents. He decides to hide his powers in shame. Bruce decides to create a secret identity for himself many years later. As the Batman, he begins to brutally strike back at the criminals in Gotham. Meanwhile, criminal Lex Luthor is on the run and is caught in a horribly disfiguring accident. Lex becomes this dimension's version of the clown prince of crime, the Joker. Bruce is eventually persuaded by Lois Lane that a more hopeful superhero is needed than his dark, violent Batman persona, giving rise to his new, more heroic identity of Superman. And that's it. So, what did I think? Well, when I first started getting into Batman when I was eight years old, I was already a lifelong Superman fan. Superman always has been and always will be numero uno for me. But but as an eight-year-old, I seriously fell in love with Batman. And like a lot of kids, I sometimes mused over just what Batman might do if he were to somehow get Superman's powers. Stood to reason that Gotham City would be a very different place. And that sort of leads you down the road of thinking, you know, a driven, vengeful Superman might be a really fucking scary person. In the end, I think most kids think about this, and then most kids reason that Batman has no powers, while Superman does have powers, because that's the best presentation for both characters. There's no need to reinvent the wheel here. Especially when there are only a few ways it can be done right, and millions of ways it could go horribly wrong. So, that's why I say that as much as I love J.M. DeMatteis and Eduardo Barreto, speeding bullets is one of the ways it can go wrong. I usually have an immense regard for J.M. DeMatteis and his work. He can usually be counted on to find new angles to even the most familiar characters. Now, his strength is, was, and may always be character rather than plot. And you know what? I don't have a problem with that. Every writer has his own forte, and characters are where DeMatteis shines. But the other side of that is that every writer also has clunkers. And Speeding, bullet, speeding Bullets is one hell of a clunker. DeMatteis fell into the same trap that a lot of writers do when they write these types of stories, and that 
in attempting to create a sort of mashup of the two concepts. I mean, does it really make sense that Lex would somehow become the Joker? And I guess apart from that, whether or not it's logical, is it really necessary? I mean, a Jokerified version of Lex Luthor is something I could have gone the rest of my life without seeing. And not because it's scary, it's because it's damn goofy looking. Uh, and it's because not even Eduardo Barreto can make that work. Now, a while back, I had Professor Allen from the Quarterbend podcast on here, and he he made the he made the remark that the blending Batman with Green Lantern just doesn't work. You're mixing DC Cosmic with the Ultimate Street Level character. Yes, those two things may be good individually. They're the two great tastes that don't taste great together. Same is true with this, and maybe more so. See, young Bruce killed Joe Chill in this story. The Waynes fulfilled their sole literary purpose, which naturally upset Bruce, who shot off his heat vision at Joe Chill and caught him full in the face, and it becomes clear later on that Chill died. That makes Batman a killer. He may not have intended to do it. He may eventually want to undo that somehow, but no matter how you slice it, Batman has blood on his hands. Now, by itself, that doesn't bother me. If we're talking about the usual Batman without superpowers, without superpowers, you understand, my view is that he would kill people at least once in a while. Now, that's an, that's an unpopular point of view, but... The fact is that a guy who's willing to take the law into his own hands about everything else wouldn't draw the line at taking life. That's an arbitrary decision to make, and I'm never going to buy it. If a kid watches his parents get murdered, one very probable lesson he'll take away from the experience is just how fragile, temporary, and cheap human life really is. If he goes on some sort of quest for vengeance, the bodies are going to start stacking up. Now, intellectually, I think pop culture readily demonstrates that we're willing to tolerate that from other human beings. There's a lot of sympathy we have with those types of characters. The guy that, that's on a, a quest for vengeance. And, you know, we tolerate that kind of thing in fiction... And to an extremely, extremely, extremely limited degree in real life. There's a certain amount of sympathy there. Batman would take lives. He may not kill some random purse snatcher, but the Joker, Bane, Two-Face? Yeah, Batman would snuff him out like a candle. If you follow Batman's psychological profile to the logical conclusion... I truly believe he would kill at least certain people and sleep like a baby later on. It wouldn't bother him one bit to wipe out the very worst of society. Vengeance. Batman is an amazingly textured character because of his foibles and losses and grief. That's just my view of Batman. Superman is an amazing literary character, and not because he, ha he has all that power but because of how he uses it. Superman lives in a world where the rules only apply to him because he permits them to. He uses his abilities 
to save others rather than help himself. Truth, justice, and the American way. Superman is heroism, compassion, and honesty incarnate. Now, the contradiction to Superman is that the guy who's most likely to see Earth as easy pickings instead uses his amazing abilities to help everyone except himself. Because we all know that if we had his powers, we'd probably use them more for our own purposes than for any greater good. Superman is an amazingly rich character because of his near perfection. That's just my view of Superman. Because of all of that, applying my view of Batman onto somebody with Superman's power level is absolutely terrifying. The idea of a driven, unhinged, and vengeful Superman is too scary to even fucking contemplate. This is where speeding bullets truly fails. When you get past the unnecessary mashup of the Joker and Lex Luthor, what we have is a Batman who's already snuffed out one life. There would be another. And another. And another. And another. J.M. DeMatteis even seems to sense this and realizes that the only way his story can end happily, at least in one issue, is if Batman somehow decides to become Superman. Now, let's just put aside simple story logic on how impossible that is. DeMatteis shows us a Batman, again with blood on his hands, anger in his veins, and superpowers to do whatever the fuck he wants to anybody, anytime. Somebody that powerful but that unstable isn't going to be easily reasoned with. Lois wouldn't be able to stop him. Anyway, as I say, I usually have a very high opinion of uh, J.M. DeMatteis, but I think this entire concept is wrong-headed from start to finish. Now, I can't let all of this go without commenting on Eduardo Barreto's art. I'm a Barreto fanboy from way back. And that guy, that guy had serious range and talent. The sad thing is, I'm not sure he ever got the full recognition that he deserved. But this issue proves why his reputation with a lot of people is as good as it is. In this issue, Barreto goes from alien to human, dim to bright, and Batman to Superman. He does it all standing on his head. He deals with tons of different moods and tones, and all of them feel spot on. And like a true master of the craft, Barreto paces the story exactly how it needs to go. This is fundamentally a pretty dark story, and Barreto doesn't shy away from that, but at the same time, he, hits the, he, he strikes the right balance with it so that it never overpowers the story. When Batman becomes Superman on the final page, understand what I'm saying here. It's a perfect artistic transition. It's, it, it, even, if it's not, even if it's not a particularly believable literary transition, you can't fault the art in, the, in, the, in that sequence. It actually, one follows from the other. In fact, I think that's maybe the perfect summary of the art in this book as compared to the story. What the writing just lacks in a lot of cases, Barreto can't make up for, but he 
makes damn sure each page is a feast for the eyes. This is just my pet theory. Don't, don't put any more stock in it than that, but... I think Barreto knew what he was up against with this story and gave it his very best effort on every single page. If there's no way to fix the concept, and I assure you there isn't, Barreto seemed to think that the least he could do was make something that was gorgeous to behold. So, moral of the story, don't fuck with Eduardo Barreto. He will end you. Okay, so that's that. Time for some promos. Be back soon. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Neymar and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is Go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Man, it sure is great to be back to From Crisis to Crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-Death and Return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman 
one half month at a time, every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. From the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron. Just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, Please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, 
and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy. 